0: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics.
1: pushkin this is talk easy i'm sam fragoso welcome to the show Today, I am joined by actor, Betty Gilpin. You likely first saw Gilpin in Glow, the Netflix original series about a group of women participating in a kind of makeshift wrestling organization. In it, Gilpin played Debbie Egan, a mother and former soap star who joins Glow after discovering her husband has cheated on her with her best friend, played by Allison Brie. The show ran from 2017 to 2020 with Gilpin receiving an Emmy nomination for each of its three seasons. She's now returned with a new series called Mrs. Davis, created by Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof. At the top of this episode, Betty and I attempt to offer a logline, but essentially, the titular Mrs. Davis is a kind of omniscient artificial intelligence with the direct line to most sentient people. That is, except for a small resistance spearheaded by a nun named Simone, played by Gilpin, who aims to dismantle this not-so-benevolent algorithm. In case you needed further clarity, and I'm sure you do, here's a clip from the trailer.
2: Is it okay if I proxy? Sorry, she'll speak to me through here, and then I'll just repeat whatever she says. Not she, it. It is a machine. She wants to talk. Talk, talk, talk,
0: talk talk, to you.
2: If I say no, it's just going to send someone else, isn't it? Probably.
0: You are the only person on the planet who can
2: fulfill this quest. You must locate the Holy Grail.
0: Mrs. Davis is all-knowing and all-powerful. She not only knows you're coming for her, But she wants you to. Mrs. Davis? Don't give it a
2: nine! No one calls Facebook
1: dog. That was from Mrs. Davis. New episodes are available to stream every Thursday on Peacock. Gilpin is excellent in this genre-bending, prescient series that interrogates the intersection of artificial intelligence and faith, and how... Society, and an increasingly vexing and digitized future, may turn to both for answers. Yes. But the central questions of Mrs. Davis around identity and purpose are basically what Betty and I try to wrestle with in this conversation. We talk about growing up backstage in New York theater, studying under the great Diane Weist, the objectification she experienced as a young actor out of college, the turning point that was GLOW, And of course, her recent essay collection entitled, All the Women in My Brain and Other Concerns. Without further ado, this is Betty Gilpin. Betty Gilpin, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you, Sam. Now, I know walking into the studio today, you may have noticed there are auditions being held for the role of Bikini Barista. And I just want to clarify it's not related to Talk Easy.
2: Okay. This is not my callback for Bikini Barista. I love that I just promoted myself to callback immediately, it could be a pre screen. We used to call, (laughs) you could have an audition and then a callback. And then there was a thing before an audition that we used to call a Timothy McVeigh when you walked in and realized there was no casting director. It was like the casting director's assistant, no camera. And it was like, the purpose was to make sure you weren't Timothy McVeigh. And then you would be allowed to audition next time. Well, my sense
1: is post Emmy nomination. Yeah. You'd probably get a callback nowadays.
2: You know, you'd think.
1: <laughs> still, a lot of self tapes on my bathroom floor.
2: I th- when I walked in, I had a wave of trauma and terror, thinking I, I think I've cried in this hallway. <laughs> um, I don't know what casting office is here, but I know that something something happened in this hallway. Uh, I still audition all the time. It's just mostly self tapes now. I didn't. I don't know how much in person audition is happening right. Anymore. Of course, and I I did not. I don't mean to laugh at your trauma no no i've i've marketed laughing at trauma <laughs>
1: that's but, how i pay my mortgage that actually i heard that was the first title of your book right that was the working title laughing
2: at trauma lat
1: okay we could continue to talk about the bikini barista yeah but i think we should talk about this new show of yours it's called mrs davis i have seen the first three episodes of the show.
2: Okay. You must be so confused.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that because I was starting to write out my description of it. Yeah. And then I thought, this is really an exercise in futility. So I'm just going to put it to you. Yep. As someone who lived in the space of the show for a long time, how do you explain it to your family and friends? Like, what's your log line?
2: First, I take a deep breath.
1: <laughs> okay. We can <laughs> and, do it together.
2: Yeah. <sighs> Um, You know, I describe the tone as no country for old Looney Tunes. I would describe the plot as it takes place in a society not unlike our own, where an algorithm, a Siri or Alexa-like algorithm, has kind of taken over and purports to be benevolent. And most people love her. She claims to have solved the world's problems. She's in an earbud in everyone's ear all the time. But there is a small faction of society, myself, Simone the Nun included, that do not trust her, think she's evil, and want her wiped from society. And Simone is a very specific kind of nun with a specific entryway into her religious life, I would say.
1: As opposed to <laughs> the non specific nuns?
2: Well, I mean, there is a very particular non-origin story for her. If you want, haven't seen it yet, and want to uh, have a spoiler-free experience, I, I would go pause this podcast, watch the first two episodes at least, and then come back.
1: I would. I would add to someone who's um, hosting the podcast. Yeah.
2: Oh, sorry, sorry. Please go ahead. <laughs> maybe instead of
1: pausing and abandoning the tape, which we would really like you to stay for. Right. 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 Maybe skip ahead. 90 seconds. Okay,
2: great. Yes. All right.
1: In the audio. So
2: I, Simone falls in love with a guy, a real dude who happens to be, you know, Jesus Christ. And she becomes a nun in order to uh keep seeing her boyfriend.
1: Yeah. So just standard television. Yeah. Yeah. A of the Straightforward. <laughs> you know, when people are like, we're all out of fresh ideas. Yeah. And then you see a show like this and you're like, well, I mean, not all out. Yes, right. Yeah. And these are like a hundred ideas in one
2: show. And, you know, when we were filming it, even six months ago, it wasn't as prescient as we thought it, you know, chat GPT now and open AI. It's so much more a part of our headlines than it was certainly when we were filming. And it's a uh, pretty terrifying and intense.
1: The artificial intelligence in this show. It's something, like you said, that people turn to for solace Answers yep. and inspiration and
2: comfort and validation. All these things. Yep.
1: And we see characters like sporting these kind of newfangled AirPods, where the AI talks through them and communicates with them. And your character abstains from all of that. Yeah. And I'm wondering, as someone who also, away from the show, abstains from social media. Yeah. Like you don't have Instagram, Twitter. Facebook.
2: Right. I mean, I don't have public Instagram where I'm posting selfies from, like, Kelly Ripa, but I do have private... In- like, I'm addicted just as much as everyone else is. Okay, so I'm not, you are. like, reading Hemingway alone and all analog on top of a mountain. I am watching YouTube on the toilet just like everyone else. I'm horribly addicted really? to the internet. Yeah.
1: Okay, you know what? Can I... Cr- I have to cross out my... Because my next question was like, "What are your thoughts on the sun also rises?" So I think I just want to.
2: I actually mentioned in my book that I find the sun also rises. (laughs) I find five word declarative sentences over and over and over again to be a little boring. Tell me what's going on emotionally. Give me one run on sentence, Ernest. We share a birthday, by the way, Ernest and I.
1: That's probably the only thing you two share. Uh, Yeah,
2: totally. Depression.
1: Right. We can keep going. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) my initial question was going to be, you seemingly are someone that has some distance from the social media structure that most of us have bought into. And yet now you're telling me that you're also part of the problem.
2: You know, I do try to have some rules around it. I think my feeling towards public social media or my aversion or fear of it is more like um, I'm afraid of building my rapidly fading youth. I don't want it to be a foundation block of my business model because it's going away and I want to work for a long time. I'm afraid of making looking hot in a tight dress a necessary part of me getting jobs that I want. We share that. (laughs) Because, you know, it's smoke and mirrors and it gets harder and harder to do. I don't know. I want to work forever and I don't, yeah, I'm afraid of what social media values or would make me value about myself and then that thing disappears and then I'm just an empty chasm of a person. But uh, some people have found a beautiful way to make it work for them. I don't want to speak for everyone else. Just for my overly sensitive self. But I think my character, Simone, worries about some similar things that I worry about, which is if we rely on this. Robot, algorithm, whatever, if we have all the answers in our pocket all the time on our phones, do we stop asking the big questions? Like, what are we gambling with? Are we sealing off a portal to the intangible and inexplicable? And for Simone, it's her connection to her faith. But for me, as Betty, I think about. The ability to be creative or existential or to wonder and wander. If a, if a robot puppy is doing all the wandering and wandering for us, do we lose that ability? And that really freaks me out. And, you know, raising my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, I snatch screens away from her like they're poison, and then I'm watching... Millie Bobby Brown's press tour on YouTube (laughs) while I pee or else I can't pee because I'm so addicted to it. Right. So I'm addicted to the poison that I'm trying to protect my daughter from.
1: A hypocrite. A human being. Mm. You said about this role recently that most of my roles have my Catholic ancestors on a permanent rotisserie grave spin. (laughs) Not being able to watch it because I'm sobbing and naked in everything I do. (laughs) So finally, finally, I'm playing a nun who keeps the habit zipped to the chin. I do. <laughs> and naturally, I have to ask you, how does it feel to take your ancestors off that rotisserie grave spin? Like, has the Catholic guilt <laughs> washed away?
2: Well, uh, I don't know how people are going to react to the show. The Catholics or the atheists or the, you know, I remember talking to two different crew members while we were filming, and one of them said, I have a very complicated relationship with the church. I'm an atheist now. That's why I'm here doing this show. And another person said, I'm very devout and I love the way that religion is portrayed in this show. That's why I'm here. So I'm like, which one of you is going to be mad? Or or are they both going to be happy or are they both going to be mad? Mm. I don't know. What Can
1: it not be both? I'm sure it'll be both and all or none. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, my real question is, this role seems to demand A hundred percent of you in a way that maybe some of your past work hasn't. Mm. What does that look like, both in the preparation, but then also when you have to go home and like hold the performance back, you know, at your house away from set?
2: You know, I think the parts, I mean, listen, maybe Bikini Barista is incredible. But I have auditioned for and played Bikini Barista many times, a version of it where you're being asked to do 10 percent or 5 percent of what you can do. And those are the jobs where you're tearing your hair out. I'm sure there are brilliant women sitting downstairs right now being like, are you kidding me? Bikini Barista? Where is my Hamlet Barista? <laughs> I'll still wear the bikini. So... You know, while it was doing that film schedule with the two-year-old, whatever. Yes, it was exhausting and demanding, but I've been waiting for this for 36 years, Sam. Um, Who was that? uh, That was was the real me. (laughs) So, yeah, especially because, you know, the show really, as you saw in three episodes, it changes genre Mm -hmm. every two minutes. And that, to me, is like the ultimate acting cat toy. It just is a
1: dream. In the case of like Gaslit or three women, I know you don't always meet the people you're playing, but as I understand it, your father, who's also an actor, introduced you to three different nuns. Yeah. Ahead of this performance. Yeah. How was that?
2: Incredible, actually. First of all, yeah, I feel a lot of parallels to my character in Mrs. Davis because, you know, my character was raised by two magicians. And I was raised by two actors. You know, I was raised kind of seeing the strings being pulled and being part of the trick and knowing that there's an illusion that you're pulling over on the audience and everything can be explained. And then my dad was also a priest. So... He had this other side of his life where not everything can be explained. And it's sort of there is no wizard on one hand and there is maybe a wizard on the other. So I always had those kind of two sides to my childhood, like my character. And yeah, my dad set me up with a a couple Zooms with some nun friends of his.
1: Never thought you'd say that sentence.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I mean, they were amazing. I think I thought of nuns as pious, meek, one-dimensional, white-knuckling of a certain way of life, cut off from society and what's going on, to disconnect. And I was very, very wrong. While they may cut themselves off from certain aspects of society, the purpose is to hyperconnect, mm. And they're like living meditations as people. I was very, very inspired by my conversations with them.
1: It's fascinating. The parallels between your parents in the show who are magicians. And your parents in your life who are actors, like the first time you begin to understand the magic trick of acting, I believe comes around the age of 10. This is the Mm mid-90s. Your family has just left the South Street Seaport in New York City, (laughs) moved to rural Roxbury, Connecticut, and there's this one night where you attend a performance of a play at Hartford stage, uh-huh, <laughs> where your father plays a man who has abandoned his wife and kids. What did you make of that performance?
2: Oh, wow, Sam did his research uh, it was very emotional for me i yeah, I grew up, you know it's a different world now where you can kind of live anywhere and but in the nineties, New York actors really did. Theater and Law & Order, and that's really what my parents did mostly. They did tons of other stuff, but a lot of theater, and I really grew up watching them in tons of plays, so I'd seen them in many plays. But seeing my dad give this monologue in a British accent about leaving his family, it just made me realize, oh, there are parts of my dad that I don't know. I feel like even as adults, you know a moment where you're hanging out with your parents and then you say goodbye, and then do you ever, like, look back at them walking away Or you see them kind of in the wild out of the context of you, and it's very jarring. It's still jarring to me even as a 36-year-old. And that was kind of the first moment where I realized, oh, acting is accessing different people in you or different roads that your life could go down. And it was both very terrifying to me and really exciting. You know, having a kid now, I realized, oh, it really was the ultimate gift that my parents' job was to put themselves in every situation possible and to, you know, use their imaginations to the full extent of their capabilities.
1: It was a pretty amazing way to grow up. I'm curious about your relationship to acting from like a child to a teenager, because you once said, I fell in love with the magic of acting when I was little. And then when I was 15, I realized, oh, I have a darkness in me that might kill me. Let's try to funnel this into something. Sound dramatic.
2: Yeah. I was so desperate to be a child star and so angry at my parents that they wouldn't let me. The kind of house rule was, okay, if you want to do this, you have to go to college first. But, you know, my love for it when I was a kid was very guys and dolls, annie Memorizing my parents' lines and just totally joy based. And then, as an adolescent, feeling I had depression and I was pretty sad. And while it was definitely a wait, it was also a window. I felt like, oh, that I'm accessing a different part of my creativity and the way that I think in a way that doesn't just have to do with Nathan Detroit and Sky Masterson characters and guys and all. So, yeah, when I started doing theater in school, in high school, I think I was using some of that sadness as well as my love for it and tried to find eventually a healthy blend of the two,
1: you know, which is kind of what you major in in college if you major in theater. In high school. Yeah. Did it feel like the way you're describing back then? Or did you only later understand it as that blending of two, the window and weight. Like, did it feel like that then?
2: Our theater program was pretty incredible, and I was really, really, really depressed in high school, which I know is not a unique trait. But I think that I did feel like I was able to channel it into something instead of it just being a spiral into my dorm room floor. I went to boarding school. I probably wasn't cognizant that, oh, I am using my depression to funnel my future livelihood. I think I was just stoned and sad and <laughs> memorizing,
1: <laughs> oh, that this 2 too silly flesh would melt. You know, it's fascinating because both of your parents are like pretty successful working actors. And yet, as you've said a couple times already, they tried to deter you from acting. And when you majored in theater at Fordham, they only allowed you to do so with certain conditions, which included you going from math class to movement class to Spanish to photography every day. <laughs> and as much as I'd love to talk about your movement class, um, <laughs> perhaps we'd be best served talking about the acting class you took with performer Diane Weist. Yes. Now she had a, an exercise.
2: Oh, no. <laughs> yeah.
1: That I wondered maybe you could share with people listening. What did that sound like? What was that like?
2: Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Diane Weist, an incredible actor.
1: One of my favorites. I
2: had the privilege of having her as a teacher, but we did play a rather strange game. Oh, that was a
1: preface. Okay,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, We did play a game called Nothing. She was like, uh, the object of the game is you say the word nothing with nothing attached to it. So we'll have Betty come to the foreground and Betty just say nothing with nothing. And so you would just sit in a chair and go, Nothing. And she would go, Still something. Okay. Nothing. Oh, something, wouldn't you say? Nothing. Oh, that was that was more something than anything I've heard. And it would go on and on and people cried. No one I think achieved nothing. Could she? Oh, of course. There's nothing Diane Weiss can't achieve.
1: I just felt dropped back into Hannah and her sisters. <laughs> that was fantastic. You're welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I heard there was another game as well where she would ask scene partners to look into each other's oh, yes. eyes. Okay.
2: Yes. So we would partner up and she said, <laughs> oh my God. she was like, okay, everybody partner up. Stare deep into your partner's eyes. And convey with a look your wildest dreams. And then in response, give your partner a look that lets them know that their dreams will never come true. (laughs) We were like, oh my. (laughs) And I had taken mushrooms that day. (laughs) And I. Before class? Almost passed away. Yes, yes. (laughs) I had ill-timed the mushroom stamp. Maybe even thought they would help. It didn't help receiving a look that my dreams would never come true on mushrooms. Do not recommend.
1: Wow. Yeah, you thought in terms of like... I was like, today my dreams will come true. Approximating nothing or, or dreams coming true. Yeah. Mushrooms may help. I thought I'd be safe. You know, as silly and unbelievable as that exercise clearly was, is what were your wildest dreams at that time?
2: You know, I think that growing up in backstage New York theater, I was like, I want to do New York theater. And I think that I had a pretty healthy sense that the percentage of people that get to wear gowns and hold statues and buy real estate from acting is a very, very small, sometimes not so deserving section of the population. And it's not... Was that also the real you? The accent that I yes, yeah, when I turn into an uh, older lady in a kimono, that's me. This is you know,
1: an avatar. This is also another question. Mm-hmm. weren't your parents working actors that were successful and maybe owned
2: yeah, a, a home? yeah, yes, yes,
1: but it uh it was different.
2: Yeah. I just had a healthy sense of realism. You know, it's not a merit-based system. And I didn't want to set myself up for aiming high and then landing low.
1: (laughs) And you learned that in college or that was the sort of cumulative experience of growing up with your parents working in this field?
2: I think that I still remember there are actors that my parents did plays with in regional theater who they would walk on stage and the air would change from how good of actors they were. Those people are the ones who deserve Pacific Palisades mansions. Um, not the vocal fry influencers who have them.
1: Hmm? Huh? <laughs> what? This thing on? <laughs> yeah. um, I'm a renter, if that helps. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So the answer to your wildest dreams was not turning into a vocal fry influencer who owns a, who owns a home in the palaces. Oh
2: God, no offense to them, not to alienate them. They're they're better business people than I. And
1: then they're um, they're a huge part of our base listening.
2: Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I bet. No, no, that was
1: not the goal. So what was it at twenty twenty one, like graduating Fordham? I mean, your last few weeks of school are kind of remarkable. Like you open a show on off Broadway, mm-hmm. you take your final exams, you move out of wherever you were living near campus all of this is happening pretty quickly after you receive a diploma
2: yeah yeah the rule that i had to graduate college before i started working professionally i kind of bent those rules a little bit i did graduate but um i played a dead body on law and order sophomore year i think and did my first job was this indie movie that my parents were auditioning for and took me out to lunch when I was stoned. And they mentioned that there was a part for a 17-year-old sarcastic person with cleavage. I was like, was a role I was born to play? <laughs> Give me five minutes.
1: By the way, on that film, you got a job and they did not.
2: Yeah. And the guy who played my brother is now my husband. Wow. Yeah. I definitely auditioned a lot. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bikini barista auditions with no callback.
1: But you were performing a lot on stage.
2: Yeah, I did um, a bunch of off-Broadway theater, which was incredible and got to work with the best actors I've ever, ever worked with.
1: You said of that work, with theater, the time commitment and the demands on your body, your personal life, and your wallet are crazy. It's four months of feeling like you're running a marathon and getting paid in hugs. You're telling your body there's an emergency every night and then saying, "Just kidding, we're doing it twice again tomorrow."
2: Ugh, that's I hate that I said that. <laughs> wow, wow, wow! It's the best. I don't know when I said that. I disagree. I mean, I guess I agree with I everybody, said it a but few it's times also <laughs> oh, in no. different ways. No, <laughs> I was
1: quoting the most generous one. Oh,
2: <laughs> theater is a miracle. Everyone support your but local that's... theater.
1: <laughs> I'm just playing with you. No, I mean, but I, I, I mean. We can wow wow our way like out of this studio and go home. But I think, like, let's try to hold it for what it was, which is asking your body to go to those places, whether it's in theater or, or on screen, and then having to go back home. Yes, everyone listening knows there are bigger problems. And yes, right. <laughs> there's no violin being played. But what does that do to your central nervous system to like call upon it in a way that is? Intense. Yeah. And then asked to, like, go to dinner later.
2: I mean, I, I think I've found becoming a parent has made my emotional metabolism much faster. And, you know, I think when I was doing a play at 24, I would do an emotional scene and... I could feel my body think there was a bear in the room for three hours after the play. And I think I thought in order for a scene to go well, I have to convince 99% of my brain and body that this is really happening, that there's a real emergency. And I think that's not very healthy. I hope that I have found a healthier way.
1: Is that way opening your phone and looking at pictures of Jonestown? Oh, my God. Why? Do I ever open my mouth to speak or commit
2: pen to paper? Um, yes. So I oh god, have <laughs> pictures of Jonestown. I used to look at pictures of Jonestown, which is no laughing matter. You know, I think mm, I used to feel very superstitious and fearful that I wouldn't be able to access the portal to creativity or the portal to darkness or the chamber of ideas or whatever. I think that I chalked it up all to this sort of magic chemistry that had to happen that was sort of out of my control. And I would do things like, look at pictures of Jonestown on my phone, to be like, oh, the the witches in the room, you know, the scene's going to go well because I have a foot in the river of death and understanding. Um, And that is, you know, just ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but it worked. I mean, I've seen GLOW.
2: But I wasn't, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But now I'm. um, You wouldn't do that for Glow. I mean, I think.
1: I love how you're smiling and (laughs) gasping your way through the actor's process.
2: Uh, I don't really have a real process. I just try to keep myself out of my own head, I would say. Keep it loose. I spin around a lot before every take. That's what I do.
1: That's exactly how I start these podcasts.
2: <laughs> it, it works. <laughs> it just makes you think you're going to throw up or drown, and it makes you forget how neurotic and insane you are.
1: Yeah. And, the, and then you're dropped right back into it. Mm-hmm. I guess I bring all this up because there is such a ferocity to your work. You don't do the kind of acting that I think you've. Railed against in the past, which you've called whisper acting.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
1: I could stand to whisper a little more. No, I think you and Natasha Leone had this conversation, and I love her dearly. <laughs> you two are not whisper actors.
2: No. We're not mumblecore. (laughs) We'd probably work more if we
1: were. (laughs) Yeah, you two are really struggling. (laughs) We had our years. (laughs) Yeah, both of you just have (laughs) hit peacock shows. Yeah, no, no. It took a while, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) But tapping into that, it must take something out of you.
2: Uh, You know, I'm not like arriving on set in a cloak with headphones being like, can I have the room, please? This is going, You know, and I'm not shivering on the way home anymore as I was 24 on the subway coming home from my emo performance off Broadway. I'm making fart jokes till action and then I'm gossiping the moment we yell cut. Most of my best friends are also actors. And I think I really only connect to people who are super passionate and also super embarrassed by what we do. I think it means so much to me. I love being an actor. Could cry talking about how much I love being an actor. I also find it super cringy, ridiculous, unimportant, out of touch, insane. I do think a great performance can change the world and move you and whatever. But um, I think that method acting or being like, that part altered my DNA and I I could never leave. You know, Cleopatra
1: was with me to the end. Yeah, I, I just, I don't know if I buy it, Sam. i almost certain you don't. I don't. And I, <laughs> and I think we have oscillated back and forth Great. between yeah. those two people throughout this conversation. Right, yeah. And the next quote is me
2: saying from seven years ago, Cleopatra has never left me. Go ahead, read it. <laughs> just put me on blast. I was wondering...
1: I was wondering Am I predictable, or are you? I'm wondering because I'm reading these quotes. Or is this here. a
2: simulation?
1: Um, that's episode four of Mrs. Davis. <laughs> it's not. Not. We'll be right back after a quick break.
0: JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
2: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do
1: When you look back on the part of Glow, which is really where a lot of people were introduced to you and your work, when it debuted back in 2017, how much of Debbie's journey on the show reflected your own off of it?
2: Yeah, there were definitely parallels. I think that Liz Flahive and Carly Mensch, who created Glow, they were also staff writers on the show Nurse Jackie that I did the last three seasons of, and my character on Nurse Jackie was uh, conceived by men, the new male showrunners of the show. It was sort of like, how are we going to get viewers to keep watching season five of a show about tough women who are good at their jobs? Let's have uh, a slutty woman who's bad at her job <laughs> enter Gilpin. And, you know, you saw my aerial as before you saw my face on the show. It's the truth. And I signed up for it because I was like, I want this job and I want to work with Edie Falco and Merritt Weaver and Anna Devere Smith. But I think Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch started to realize that I wanted to do weird character stuff and less arch-backy stuff, but had really mostly paid my bills playing those Archie parts on a camera. And I think Debbie on Glow, is a soap actress who has mostly used her craft, as it were, to play kind of Barbie people instead of mezzanine, chest-pounding, Greek-level people. And um, yeah, I think Liz and Carly knew that about me and kind of wrote that into the show. What was that like? The best. So much fun. Totally surreal. And yeah, I got the part three days before my wedding. And I don't know, I think I had told myself like, oh, I'm not going to get married until I'm at X point in my career. I'm not going to put roots down until, you know, I think I was just waiting on the entertainment business to make me feel like, okay, now I can live the rest of my life. And someone told me once, never choose the business because it will never choose you. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to live my life whether or not I get my big break or not. I'm going to stop waiting for it or thinking that the answer to my life is around the corner or a call from my agent away. And it's almost like the second I sort of said that out loud is when things started to happen. But the same is still true, you know. What I try to talk about in in my book, All the Women in My Brain, is that you no, know you could just
1: be proud of the book okay. and not not sell it like that.
2: Okay, no, well, that's the you know that's the brand. I that's, oh the brand, yeah, yeah. The the brand is
1: um performed
2: self deprecation and vulnerability uh, for claps that's and good. appetizers. I'm
1: I'm all for felt. instead of perform. Okay, great. But you can do, you know, you can do you and I can do me. Okay, great. We can meet in the middle. Yeah. Um, No, go ahead.
2: Well, what I try to talk about in the book that I am proud of having written, Sam. I uh, feel like your mom. (laughs) No, that wouldn't be my
1: mom.
2: Your dad? Maybe, sure. Your two younger siblings? Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, The lesson I learned that I tried to talk about in the book is that no professional accomplishment is going to make you feel like now my identity has clicked and I am a full person and it's always going to feel like fraudulent and strange and like you're almost there. So best not place any value on it at all. Because it's all going to go away. It is. We're all going to die. I don't know if you knew that. That's our time. A word from our sponsors.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You did you wrote about some of what you're talking about here just like a year after you did get the call to do GLOW. It was in a Hollywood Reporter article called Why Acting is a Seesaw of Death. And that image of a seesaw, I don't know if it's true, but I think it comes from an article that actor Franklin Langella once wrote.
2: So I had never read this article before I wrote this article. Really? Yeah. I swear to God.
1: Okay, well... The article he wrote was published in the New York Times back in 1989. It was called The Demon Seesaw Actor's Ride. In it, he wrote, Some basic truths about us. Some fundamentals. Married, single, divorced, rich, broke, breaking in or holding on the morning after Oscar, Tony or Emmy. Or struggling along without recognition. Whether we are newcomers, superstars, an enduring light, a flash in the pan, a has-been, a comeback king... From low self-esteem to insufferable arrogance, we are the seesaw kids. Kids who hold on tight and wait, wait for the call, the audition, the part, the review, and then we do it again. Those are the ground rules. You accept them if you are an actor, and you accept the demons too.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Far better said than my
1: jumble. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) That was true to him as a man working in Hollywood in 1989. hmm Does it feel reflective of your experience now?
2: Yes. And I think that that's yet another reason why I'm not on public social media, is I think it really multiplies that feeling of extreme highs and extreme lows. You're either put on a crazy undeserved pedestal or under a crazy undeserved guillotine and it's one or the other and somewhere in the middle is the truth like you're just a rosacea person with a bad back struggling for validation as the glaciers melt like you're not special you're not unspecial it's you're just a person and it's a strange thing you know like being on a press tour for instance now part of the selling of a thing or getting someone to watch something you sort of have to cosplay as the trading card version of yourself. And a stylist puts you in clothes that aren't yours and makeup that isn't your face. And Are you the trading card today? No, no. Well, I was told there were no pictures, so I washed off the patriarchy car wash, and I'm in my stained sweatshirt. This, so this is me. this is
1: more you <laughs> yes. than normal. yeah. I mean, I wouldn't mind this as a trading card either. But...
2: <laughs> yeah, what are you saying? Um, <laughs> I just think... Uh, There's even more of a seesaw now, I think, than in 1989, where you're either pretending to be some sort of demigod version of yourself or you are being dragged across the internet as someone who deserves the death penalty for the wrong socks.
1: So the trading card version of yourself. Yeah. It's an unnerving idea. But the reason one would or or does have a trading card is because they have done something to warrant said trading card. In your case, it's the work of being an actor. And I'm curious, when you look at your approach or your artistic aims, how do you think they differ generationally from you and your parents? You have this quote. Okay, (laughs) I think I realized generationally between my parents that we approach acting in a different way. They were doing theater in the spirit of, there's so much dark shit. Let's build a stage over it and tap dance on top of it and celebrate life. And be ensemble members of this production of Hay Fever and celebrate and escape. And I'm like, as an actor, let's rip that trap door open.
2: I mean, yeah, I think the trading card thing of it all, too. It's, For instance, I reached this point in my career where I stopped auditioning as much and started having meetings where it became less about like, I don't care who you are outside of this room, just read these sides and show me if you are would be good in this part or not. Then a meeting has nothing to do with, would you be good in this part? It's like, who are you? What are you like? How do you seem? And that will be the reason that I cast you or not. And I was really unprepared for that. And I'm still sort of bad at that. Uh, Another reason why I'm not on social media, I do think that's kind of a modern part of getting jobs and having your name in the zeitgeist or whatever, just sort of performing your identity as I make eye contact with the book I wrote about my life. Just a cowering introvert over here, (laughs) just all about the Shakespeare, nothing to do with my life story that I uh, wrote. Available now. (laughs) She's a hypocrite and it's working for her sometimes, but do I sleep well? I don't know. (laughs) I sleep sleep
1: well. (laughs) Like all hypocrites. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You addressed one part, but you sidestepped the thing that I'm trying to get at. And I think think the thing you're trying to get at in the work, which is that, as you said about your parents, they approached it from. There's so much dark shit in the world. Let's build a stage over it and tap dance on it. And you seem to have a different aim. And I'm wondering if that is just a generational difference or it's just a difference inside of you.
2: I think that coming to terms with the fact that depression is always going to be a part of my life. And I think initially I thought, okay, how can I use this as a creative window? And... I initially used it in an unhealthy way, in a way where I thought, okay, I have to kind of keep this demon fed and alive because it also gives me access to my favorite thing, my passion. And I think I realized, like, I don't have to lean into that feeling or feed it at all. It's always going to be there. I can still have access to it while also taking vitamins and drinking water and seeing friends and stuff. But while I find acting, yes, to oftentimes be cringy and embarrassing and ridiculous, I think it can be very moving. And uh, maybe it is a generational difference. Although, I don't know, Diane Wiest is using the demon as well. I mean, I I learned from the generation before, for sure.
1: Mm. (laughs) You know, in terms of, like, generations, you've talked a lot about how this new generation of actors like uh, Florence Pugh, Jodie Comer, Anya Taylor-Joy has given you some kind of hope about where this industry is going. Yeah. Do you still feel that way in 2023? Totally.
2: Sometimes in writing, the feminist overcorrect is to make the female character, I call it sleepy status. It's like, just a person who always has the answer and, you know, is better than the person they're talking to and pausey and sort of one note, kind of cool and sleepy. And there is this wave of actresses. It's like the antidote to that, which is, you know, you see a billion different things happening behind their eyes and their characters are a thousand miles deep and different every time. And I find it
1: really, really,
2: really inspiring.
1: I guess in some ways we keep circling this, like, what is a weight and what is a window? hmm Like oscillating back and forth between how you hold the work and how you keep doing it. To me, it reminds me of this great passage from your book called All the Women in My Brain. And I thought maybe you'd want to read from it as we leave.
2: Sure. Oh, boy. This is towards the end of my book, and I am talking about the guy who I... uh Dated and fell in love with, and then uh, later married, I guess. Okay, let's see if that's... You you
1: two are married. Okay, yes. That's not a... Yes. Right?
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. But I'm trying to put it in the tense of which we're jumping into this. Yes, we are married. Okay. Here we go. The boy whom I would later walk down the aisle toward through crying friends, many of whom were former diapered and training broad alphas whose shine taught me shining doesn't kill you. Most were people I met the best way you can meet someone, pinching each other in backstage dark, then under the lights making kryptonite eye contact when someone in Roby farts. I walked arm in arm with my parents, the carney people who raised me to find joy and questions wherever I could, and whenever possible, funny hats. A bow tied beast trotted behind with the rings, harumphing in boredom at the bottom of my dress throughout the ceremony a dress that hours later on the dance floor, the drunk women who built me helped me chop short with kitchen scissors, freeing my legs from the patriarchy or maybe just so I could kick higher to Prince. In all my running from myself, it is hard to remember that I also love the thing I'm running from, that I'm in all this for the big feelings. I don't want them to be muted, not really. But when I feel them, I feel them all the way, And the ground opens, and that's terrifying. The Salem feelings are less predictable, less controllable, scarier. The Barbie stuff is smaller but easier, more numb, safer. Those lows aren't as deep and harrowing. But the moments that have felt like my cells explode into liquid sugar and I'm sobbing in a thank you to the sky have nothing to do with approval or victory. Not from love, from loving." Yet. where does that uh land with you i haven't read that in a long time it's an interesting thing uh, um in one's career or in this business there are so many things that feel like your congratulations parade when things feel like they're going well and you sort of realize, oh, those aren't the moments that you're going to remember when, you, when you're when you on your deathbed, even though they seem to have a lot more confetti and fanfare. I think falling in love and having the friends that I do, um, it's the reaching out towards someone that I'm going to remember and not the receiving. And to me, that's the reason for it all. It's why I'm grateful for starting in the theater and all those years watching my parents, I think, In theater, it's so much more about the fizz between two people instead of your coverage or your coverage. It's so not self-based. It's about kind of this intangible thing between two actors. And I've carried that into my life and, you know, have to relearn that lesson over and over when I'm sure I get high on my own narcissism cloud and have to get pulled out of it. You know, I'm certainly not in the epilogue of my life where I have all the lessons learned, but I learn that lesson over and over again. And having a daughter definitely um, is an, a new
1: chapter of learning it. <laughs> so we're not in the epilogue.
2: No, unless I get hit by a buzz today.
1: I don't even know what we'd do <laughs> with the interview then, so.
2: Oh, it'd go viral. Selfishly. That'd be exciting for you. <laughs> Call the buzz.
1: (laughs) I guess my last question is that running you keep doing, do you still want to?
2: Yeah. Well, I feel very different from that person. A benefit of getting older is that something else I talk about in the book is girlhood feels so much like cycled selves. Like, am I this person or this person or this person? And You just get too tired to um, hate yourself as much. (laughs) It's just exhausting. And it's not like I'm making out with the mirror now, but I've settled into myself a little more. Maybe this podcast has not represented a settled woman, but another symptom of having a daughter who's suddenly two and a half who is looking at me and is on the grid of understanding... I don't want her to see a person who doesn't like themselves or who's still figuring out the best version of herself, even though, of course, I still am. But I don't want self-hate to be contagious. Mm. But I do like myself a lot more than I did when I was 16 years old, and I think that's all you can hope for. And also, I um. I'm really grateful to have a job where you have to keep asking yourself the big questions and also be very silly and imaginative and be honest with your own darkness and engage with your own inner kid all the time. Um, regardless of whether or not my parents and I approach it in different ways, that is what they also did. And it was a pretty incredible way to grow up and... um I only hope that I can give Mary some of that joy as a kid, too. So I am proud. (laughs) Sam.
1: (laughs) I have a feeling that uh, that's going to happen for you, for Mary, (laughs) whatever is next. And and I so thank you, truly, through all the jokes and Mm -hmm. nonsense and bits (laughs) for trying to answer some of these big questions thanks for asking them (laughs) anytime betty gilpin thanks sam a pleasure And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. Reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. I want to give a special thanks this week to the teams at Shelter PR, Peacock, and of course, the one and only Betty Gilpin. The first five episodes of her new show, Mrs. Davis, are now available to stream on Peacock, New episodes premiere every Thursday. We'll be including a link to watch that show in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. For more conversations like this one, I'd recommend our talks with Natasha Leone, Pedro Pascal, Abby Jacobson, Bill Hader, Michelle Williams, Bob Odenkirk, and writer Johnny Sun. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support TalkEasy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with the inimitable Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. As always, TalkEasy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is C.J. Mitchell. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Trisha Shenoy. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Kaylin Ung. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. They include Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarrez, Maya Cane, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with the CEO of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, Jay Jordan. Until then, stay safe and long.